My name is Rob, and this is a bonus episode of Songbirding. So the following segment I have actually recorded back in, I want to say late November, early December, and I didn't get around to releasing it. So just to give you context of uh, if I do refer to a particular time of year, it's early December is the context, but it still works well uh, right now in the midst of winter. So hopefully you enjoy. It's a bit about uh, getting started with birding. Uh, in this, I'm gonna talk a bit about tips for beginner birders. So while the audience is geared towards people who either are beginners or just consider themselves as beginners, there may be useful tips for everyone. So first thing would be, at least what I think of as first thing is kind of equipment. Um, birding's a fairly inexpensive thing to get into. Um, some do it without binoculars, but generally uh, you'll want binoculars. Binoculars come in various uh, price ranges. I would just say get what you can afford. Um, even if they're... the only kinds I don't recommend are like the tiny fold-up ones that uh, go into your pocket or something. Uh, I've tried that. It, they don't really work very well. Um, but generally what you'll get is the often the cheaper ones Yeah, they're lower quality, but they're also going to be a bit heavier. So just uh, be wary of that uh, If you do get a pair of fairly heavy binoculars um, Get yourself a really good neck strap then uh, Especially the kind that what I used to do when I had heavy pair was I had the straps that um, uh, photographers use uh, you can get those or um, for I think about 15 bucks or so you get the chest straps it's actually what I prefer these days and the chest straps take the weight off your shoulders uh, well take the weight off your neck and redistribute it to kind of your shoulders and chest um, highly advise those because I find uh, any kind of neck strap just gets annoying after about an hour or so um, Whereas you can wear a tress strap pretty much all day and feel okay. Uh, the type of binocular um, tends, most people advise the uh, eight times binoculars. Um, some people are into 10 times binoculars. Um, the eight times are kind of the more standard. I believe it's, uh, what is it, eight by, eight by 42 is the, uh, yeah, that's a fairly standard one. Some people like the 10 times though, and those, uh, they give you a closer view, but I would think those are probably better when you know what you're looking for. That would be my advice, um, because, because you'll have a smaller field of view, you're not going to be able to uh, see as much, and while the birds will be a bit smaller in eight times, um, you're still going to see where they are, not spend as much time hunting around uh, when you're looking through them. There are all kinds of brands of binoculars. I'm not going to get into which ones are better than others. You can look up reviews and decide how you feel about which ones, etc. As I said before, you can spend a lot of money or you can spend a little money. Or you can spend an in-between amount of money. It's really how much you want to put in. Um, if you're early on and you're not entirely sure, if birding is your thing, then just get something fairly inexpensive. 
uh, and get something better later. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of approaches you can take to it. So for other equipment, um, this is a fairly you know new thing in the last 10 years or so. Uh, digital cameras are much, 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 much cheaper. You might think your phone might be good enough, but the um, problem with the phone is it's zoom that it has for photos is, you call it digital zoom, so it's not really actually zooming in, it's just enlarging what you're looking at already. So digital zoom just uh, makes things more pixelated and um, gives a, a focused view of something, whereas uh, optical zoom is actually giving you a clearer object further away. Um, optical zooms, you can get all kinds of sizes of cameras. Um, you can go DSLR as well. That When you go DSLR, you're not being in <laughs> cheap at all at that point. Uh, DSLRs don't come cheap because they come with fixed lenses. Uh, some have zooms, but they're, they're going to be ranges that are not going to be uh, they're going to zoom in some, but um, not a ton. And I've always sworn by using um, what they call point-and-shoot cameras or bridge cameras or uh, ultra zoom. There's all kinds of terms for it. These are the cameras that do 20 times and above zoom optically. And they can come in small form factors. Um, ones like cameras that will just fit in your pocket and could do 20 times and they come in much bulkier ones, ones that are nearly DSLR sized and can do 65, 70, 80, 90 times um, optical zoom. One side note though is um, those who talk about you know comparing one 65 times, another 70 times, another 50 times, um, those three numbers could be, actually mean the exact same thing it's important to know what the base focal length is. So if it is, uh, you know, take a look at my Panasonic here. Oh, it's all faded off now. Uh, oh no, there it is, 20. So the base here is 20 millimeters uh, focal length. And so it can go up 60 times. So 60 times 20 is 1200 millimeters. Um, now, if you have another one that's at, you know, starts at 10 millimeters and it goes 65 times, then it would be 600 millimeters would be the full length, and that would actually be half what I have now. So the multiplier, it's an important number, but, you know, don't think that if because some 65 times another is 50 times, that the 65 times zooms in more, it might not. Really depends. Mine right now at 65 or at 60 times, but it is a wide, wide angle on the base uh, focal length, which means 65 times in this or 60 times in this one might be the equivalent of 50 times in another one. Now, point and shoots, I usually advise those because lower cost, uh, easier to use, um, easier to lug around too. Uh, you can, if you get one of the larger ones, you can just get a side pack and throw it in there and you'll be fine. Uh, if you get a big DSLR, you're lugging a pretty big camera around and binoculars. So that can be a bit much. The other thing is, is the point and shoot bridge camera can work really well as 
a fill-in for a scope. So let's say you got something on your binoculars. You can't see it too clearly, but you can see there's something there, and that's eight times um, the base range, uh, 42, I think it is. And you've got a camera that maybe it can do 20 times of uh, 42, let's say, at the same time. So you can get a much better view with that camera. Then, yeah, pull out that camera, get a couple photos, take a look at what it, what it is you're looking at. That kind of thing, it'd be useful for that. And of course, uh, it can be useful for documentation. Uh, you don't know a bird, so you get photos of it. You can later on upload those online, get people, ask people, what is this thing? Or use sites like iNaturalist uh, to detect what it is. Um, I'm not sure if Merlin is online. It probably is also available as a web site. Or you can feed it into your phone, uh, the Merlin app and see what it says it thinks it is but you can always ask people uh, the reason asking people is helpful is because they can tell you why it's a particular bird an automated system will have its guesses and it may be fairly certain but it can never really tell you why which is important in some species that when you're getting to know sparrows for example they're really uh they're easy to tell apart when you know them but if you don't know them yet uh, it can be really hard to tell what, what the difference really is between several of them. So beyond that, uh, just having your smartphone around, of course, very handy. Uh, do audio recordings. Um, if you don't have a camera around, you can at least try to make use of it uh, to document something. may not be a very good photo, but it might be enough in some cases to at least help in identifying something. And of course, speaking of a smartphone, there are several apps you can carry around with you that are field guide apps. They have recordings on them. Uh, I currently use iBird mostly, but the Audubon has an app. Uh, several other apps are on the App Store. I believe there's a Sibley one. There's all kinds of ones. They have some have photos, some have illustrations, some have both. Uh, most of them have recordings, and that's the important part. Being able to hear what something is supposed to sound like when you're in the field very handy didn't have that kind of thing 20 years ago way easier these days for that and uh, so that is a huge help if you can have that with you because carrying around a book field guide isn't as handy uh, the only time I do carry a book field guide around or at least the only one I do generally is a field guide on nests because nests are real tough and there really isn't any good apps for them yet um, so I usually have that handy so in terms of equipment the other thing that people do sometimes acquire that i'm not going to speak much about because i don't own one is a scope i mentioned it briefly uh, a good zoom camera can make at least it can make for at least an okay scope sometimes uh, kind of shaky they don't produce as much light through them there's all kinds of downsides but uh, upside is a scope is a pretty heavy thing to carry around pretty big and heavy and is of limited use uh, it's not going to be useful in hikes generally it's more for shorebirds uh, waterfowl uh, when you're sitting along the shoreline looking for things um, stationary birding is what it's useful for and uh, if you're into that you may want to invest in one eventually but it's uh, personally I don't have one because it's kind of a high cost for something I wouldn't use very often. I would use it once in a while, but not very often. So hopefully the equipment stuff hasn't like scared anyone off because really 
the binoculars uh, is the key thing. And seriously, a fairly cheap, you even just get a used camera with an optical zoom of, I'd say, around 20. That would be enough to at least get some. You don't need great photos when you take photos. You just need identifiable photos. They don't need to be artistic, perfect, sharp, non-blurry. They just need to be as good as you can get them. Because uh, plenty of birds can be identified by what we call record photos. Uh, record photo is kind of a term used for a photo that uh, it's purely just for a record. It was, you know, let's say not your best, most artistic work type of photo. So when you're a beginner birder, where do you find birds to look at? Um, these days, we're really lucky. There's eBird. You go to eBird.org and you look up your area and you can take a look and see what is around, what has been seen, where, when, by whom and you can see photos videos things like that that people have taken locally most importantly you can find out with their hotspot explorer where the best places for birds are uh, in your area so with that stated do do your best check those places out but also know that uh, those are just going to be the most popular places um, there's probably going to be birds in all kinds of places not even really listed in eBird. So once you get a little more comfortable searching for birds, you should also check around your own neighborhood. Maybe you've got a small woodlot nobody's really spent any attention on. Uh, see what you can find there. Um, I found all kinds of things in places that there were no records for anything at. So that's easily doable. So the other thing you can do is do a quick Google search and see if you have any local email groups to your area where people report rare birds or unusual birds. You may even have a beginner group locally for all you know. Uh, often these groups are on email, Facebook, stuff like that. And of course, check and see if you have a local chapter of the Audubon Society or a local naturalist club of some kind. Um, they will often have outings where you can learn skills uh, from veteran birders and uh, also people that can help with mentorship because that's a key component as well. So where, when is the best time to go birding around the year? Um, it depends on where you live, where I'm in southern Ontario. I always feel like winter is the best time because there are no leaves. Uh, or very few leaves in the trees, uh, the exception of, of course, coniferous evergreens. Uh, and this makes leaf, this makes it so leaves aren't in the way when you're trying to look for birds. Also, there are fewer species around, so a lot less to get confused about. Uh, it often being fairly bright in the daytime because of snow on the ground means that photos are clearer views are clearer. Um, it also gives you a reason to go out in the winter if you're not a big fan of winter. Um, it'll give you something to do when you're out there in the winter. This can be different in different regions. For example, if you're somewhere where the leaves aren't really going away uh, as much or 
you don't get snow, some of those advantages drop. Uh, you might live somewhere where there's a bit, there's a few more species in the winter than in the summer. Um, often wintering birds have more confusing plumages, more dull, less uh, standout plumages. So that could be more difficult in some places. Also, there aren't birds uh, singing as much, so there aren't going to be uh, singing their main songs necessarily, depending on the species again. So the other benefit to uh, learning birds is winter, you'll learn the resident birds, the species that are there year-round. Um, ones that aren't going to leave from summer. And so it gives you a chance to learn some of the birds you are going to see when spring and summer roll by. When the spring migrations come through, you'll at least know which birds Oh, you know, this downy woodpecker, they're here all year, I already know that one. Whereas something else, maybe northern flickers come through and you don't usually see those where you are. Um, so you would say, okay, well that's a different kind of woodpecker that I don't usually see. Okay, so when it comes to identification, um, most important part of learning on anything is kind of having a feedback loop, which would be you see something, you try to identify it, you have something to verify with. So you take a photo of a downy woodpecker and you say, well, I think this is a downy woodpecker. You check with someone or something and it verifies uh, that you are correct uh, and that maybe it isn't a hairy woodpecker, for example, which can look very similar. Um, it's important to have that kind of feedback loop for quick learning. This is why it's so much easier today to get into birding. Uh, if you were doing this 30 years ago, your feedback loop would not be through photos because you probably wouldn't have a camera good enough to take photos. You would probably be scribbling down field notes or maybe journaling uh, or maybe you would be sketching or uh, maybe you'd be out on a trip with someone and they'd be able to verify with you but you could only do that when you can find someone that you can join who knows what certain species look like. The feedback loop back then was either dependent on you having a mentor with you or having someone you could check in with once in a while. But it certainly wasn't as quick as taking a photo, uploading it to the internet, and getting feedback within a couple minutes sometimes. Nothing like that. You might be waiting days weeks, who knows how long. And of course, if it takes a long time to get your feedback, it might be more difficult to learn uh, what it is you need to learn. Uh, and the same goes true with sounds. Um, this is something I hope the podcast helps some people out with, is that you get, with the narration, some level of feedback loop right away of what something is. And for me, the other reason I started recording stuff like this was that and I would have something come next spring, for example, to listen to as birds start to return and remind myself what everything sounds like again, because, you know, I'm not going to be hearing house wren throughout the winter here. Uh, not going to be hearing blackburnian warblers here in the winter. Certainly if there were any here, they wouldn't be singing. Um, so stuff like that helps as well. So you also get a good feedback loop, of course, when you go out in outings. If it's a local Audubon group or naturalist society of some kind, 
uh, that can help a lot. That also helps a lot because often uh, the more veteran birders can tell you things that you can't necessarily learn from anything else, such as behavior, certain little things that people notice in the field that birds do that aren't easy to capture in other ways. You can't capture it by audio, can't capture in photos, could probably capture it in video, but that's difficult to do. Video is still not really at a point where capturing behavior is an easy thing uh, in certain cases. Some cases it's easy, but video is difficult. Even when completely zoomed in and everything, complete full zoom video is still tends to be fairly shaky and you have to be able to find the bird. The bird can't be hidden behind twigs, leaves, etc. So uh, there's still a lot to be learned in the field with other birders. And plus some people also have their techniques on where exactly to find birds, how to find birds, things like that that you can learn. They can also help you with the other problem of birding by ear, which is there are species that are not birds that sound like they might be birds. So it, you might want to get to know the tree frog, for example, different squirrel calls, uh, chipmunk, and uh, chipmunk sounds. There's uh, all kinds, depending on where you live, there might be all kinds of species that do different sounds that could sound like birds. Lastly, I just want to mention that there's a lot of different ways to do birding. There's a lot of different motivations people can have, different styles they can have. Um, I'll just briefly cover some different ways people do birding. Um, and that's the interesting thing about it. You could be someone who may just be interested in what's at your feeder. And you spend a lot of care and attention uh, with your outdoor space that you might have uh, stewardship over. So you do some gardening or you make sure your feeders are clean and filled. Um, make sure you have good window uh, decals to uh, not have any fatalities from birds hitting your windows, those kinds of things. And maybe that's what's important to you and maybe you just like documenting that or not documenting that. That is certainly one kind of birder too. Um, you could start even just from that. Uh, depending on where you live, you might have a lot of different species at your feeder. Uh, you might not, and you might enjoy just getting to know the behavior of the few species you have. That's one example. Another example would be maybe you're someone who goes on regular walks every day. Um, and you happen to want to know what you see uh, when you're out there. And that's another kind right there. You may be someone who likes to document heavily, so photos, uh, videos, recordings, audio recordings, anything like that. Um, E-bird records, so you may be someone who likes to document and checklist everything. So make checklists for all of the birds you've seen. So you can use eBird for that, for example, which I highly advise you do because you will get a good list through eBird of what you've seen, when you've seen it, and what you haven't seen. So that you can let eBird know to tell you if someone reports something you haven't seen in your area, you can do that. Um, and that leads into chasing, which there are some people who love chasing birds. And I don't mean chasing them around the forest, I mean uh, there's a rare bird somewhere 
an hour's drive away, they make sure that they have a way of finding that out quickly and they drive out there to see that bird before it disappears uh, because maybe it's something they've never seen before or just really interested in rare occurrences of bird species. Um, sometimes it's also called twitching and that's something where maybe you're really into the chase of a rare or uncommon bird. You might enjoy more of the data collection part of it and you know taking a look at data trends and seeing what uh, and paying attention to what other people are seeing and putting together reports about uh, the bird species in your area or helping coordinate a bird survey or a Christmas bird count those kinds of things uh, that's a whole other kind of birding right there too you might enjoy the more social aspects of going out with groups on uh, bird hikes and uh, getting together with other birders from different parts of the world uh, in your area or in other areas. Maybe you want to travel, maybe you want to help others. That's another kind of birding. Uh, maybe you're competitive. And that's a whole very serious realm of birding where uh, people have friendly competitions with one another. Uh, states and provinces often have uh, big year lists, that's the idea of when someone decides to do a year where they try to see as many species as possible and they try to beat the existing records for a given state, province, county, region, whatever. Um, it can be a, an expensive endeavor if you live in a huge place like I do in Ontario, um, but it, some people are really driven by that kind of thing. Uh, some people also do more micro versions of that where they do a big day competition or a birdathon competition those kinds of things are fairly common as well and so there are competitive birders and that's a different way of doing birding so i hope i've given you a sense of like some of the different possibilities for someone who might be interested in birding there's all kinds of ways to do it uh, you might mix and match in your own preferences you might change over time i know i have i did used to do a bit more of the twitching, chasing type of stuff. I pretty much never do anymore. Uh, I used to document on eBird like crazy. Uh, I don't as much anymore. Not because I don't want to, but just because uh, sometimes it's just awkward to have a cell phone out all the time writing everything down. Uh, so I tend more to do it now when I have a secondary purpose, such as as part of a survey, or I've come across something I know is needs to be documented, or I'm in a particular, particular patch that I really want to keep documentation for, or if I really want uh, other people to know about a particular bird I found, because maybe it's not rare, but it's uncommon, or I know that people have struggled finding it, so I'll make sure it is on eBird, or I send an email out on one of the rare bird, uncommon bird sightings groups email group or Facebook or whatever. It, your preferences can change over time, depending on the situation. There may be other things that limit your ability to do one of these kinds of birdings and you can take on another kind of birding. Uh, maybe you have a disability where maybe you can't be going around chasing things all the time. Uh, so maybe something more stationary uh, is more appropriate or maybe more interesting. Uh, the type of birding where Maybe you stand at shorelines, uh, watch for waterfowl, or sit in a particular place and wait to see what goes by. Uh, that's another kind right there. 
Maybe your eyesight isn't too great, but your ears are good. Maybe your ears aren't too good, but your eyesight is great. That can change your style of birding as well. So I hope this has helped for anyone who's starting out birding or just wants some more ideas, things they can do to get better at it. Uh, you can always contact me, songbirdingpod at gmail.com if you have any uh, suggestions for the podcast or other topics to cover in bonus episodes. And if you got any tips to share on beginner birding and you're on something like Twitter, for example, feel free to share those tips and uh, tag at songbirdingpod on the uh, tweet and we'll uh, retweet that.